You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Episode 124 of that one time on tour is brought to you by the band 500 Miles to Memphis. Formed in 2003, 500 Miles to Memphis came together on the banks of the Ohio River between Cincinnati, Ohio and Newport, Kentucky. Their genre-bending take on Americana and punk rock has been received worldwide in the form of movies, TV, video games, and their award-winning live shows. Logging 250 performances a year, these indie road kings have been to hell and back. Be sure to pick up a copy of their latest album, Blessed Be the Damned, out now on Paper and Plastic Records. For more information on 500 Miles to Memphis, you can find them on all of the streaming platforms as well as 500mtm.com. Now here it is, their new single, Hold On Tight. If you knew me then, you wouldn't let me in I don't blame you for how it's been You were a 
This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Hey, this is Jay Bentley from Bad Religion, and you are listening to That One Time On Tour. Everybody out there in podcast land, what is going on? As always, this is Chris Swinney, your host for that one time on tour. If this is your first time joining me, this is my podcast where I get to sit down with somebody in or around the entertainment industry and have a stellar conversation. Uh, I hope you guys are all doing well out there and staying safe and healthy. This pandemic is no joke, man. There's a couple schools here in Indiana that have shut back down because uh, the cases are going back up. We were steady for a while, but it's starting to go back up. And, you know, with flu season upon us, I don't I don't see a a big bright light at the end of the tunnel. I think uh, we'll probably end up in lockdown again. But that just gives me more time to work on the podcast. Uh, Things are going really well here at Swinney HQ. I finally opened up my new music education studio, which is called Midwest Music Mentors. If uh, anybody out there needs guitar lessons, bass lessons, whatever, if you're in the central Indiana area, it is better, but I also do remote lessons. You can hit me up. Just uh, hit me up, podcast at gmail.com, and uh, we'll take care of it. But everybody here in the Muncie area, come get some lessons. Let's do it up. You got to come see the new studio. It's awesome. Also, I am writing and recording new music for my project Southern Gothic and uh it's going to be great. I've got some good songs coming out with some special guests and I can't really talk about it right now but you guys are going to love it when it comes out. Hopefully you'll love it. I love it and a lot of other people have said that they en- enjoy it as well. So hopefully you guys will like it also. But uh other than that, just working on the podcast, trying to stay busy. I've booked up like the next 3 months worth of guests, so there's no end in sight. This podcast will be coming to you so you can enjoy it or tell me how bad it sucks or whatever, but it will be coming your way. I have guests galore coming up and you're going to, you're going to enjoy it. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So today on the program continues my two week tribute to bad religion. Last week I had Jim Ruland on the show who co-authored the new bad religion book, do what you want the story of bad religion. 
This week, I have legendary founding member of Bad Religion, Mr. Jay Bentley, on the program. And uh, I had so much fun talking to Jay. I had not seen Jay since Warp Tour back in 2009, and it was really, really cool to catch up with him. And this is probably one of my favorite chats I've had since I started the podcast, and I think that you guys are going to understand it when you hear the conversation. We talk about so much crazy stuff, just stories I always wondered about bad religion and just questions I've had for Jay since I was like 14 years old. I got to ask him, and he was super gracious with his time and answered all of my questions. So... Before I get to my conversation with Jay, I got to pay some bills. I always do it every week. I have sponsors. The band at the beginning of the podcast that is sponsoring this episode, 500 Miles to Memphis, That this is their second time sponsoring an episode, and I love these guys so much. They're on Paper and Plastic Records, which is past guest of the show, Vinny from Less Than Jake. It's his record label, so he loves these guys as much as I do. He put out their record, so he has to love these guys. But you want to check out 500 Miles to Memphis. That is 500mtm.com. Thank you guys so much for sponsoring. Also, Partscaster Concierge, my buddy Gary, he makes guitars. He built me a guitar. I love it. He needs to build one for you. So check out PartsCasterConcierge.com. If you guys have a band or a company and you would like to sponsor an episode, you can do it very easily. Just hit me up, podcast at gmail.com, and we will figure it out. If you would like to support this podcast because you love it so much, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash podcast. Get involved over there. There's some bonus content, and I would appreciate it if you would check that out. For a one-time donation, you can hit up my Venmo. It is at Christopher Swinney. That is C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-S-W-I-N-N-E-Y. The best way to support us is to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. I'd like to give a shout out to our art director, Sarah, over at Road Dog Supply. She's been working really, really hard. We have new limited edition merchandise. It's like limited edition like color combos. They're selling out fast. If you want this this campaign of shirts we have going on, you need to get one now or they might be gone forever and you'll have to buy the next one. So head on over to TOTOTpodcast.com and check out the merch and all the cool stuff over at our brand new website. If you're on Facebook, you need to sign up for the TOTOT community Facebook group. And if you want to stay abreast of everything that we're doing Go on over to the website and sign up for our brand new mailing list, and I will send you cool emails about all kinds of stuff that has to do with the program. So I'm going to try to try to keep this short. It might get away from me, but um, I didn't know what I was going to do for a segment today, and I got a few emails from people that really enjoyed the tour diary segment that I did about a month or so ago. So I'm going to do... A Chronic Chaos Tour Diary. Chronic Chaos was my band that I started in high school. And we did a lot of touring, put out two full links and an EP. We were on a bunch of compilations. We did Warp Tour. And this is from one of our early tours. Uh, this, this entry to the tour diary is on January 25th, 2003. And uh, it says Pensacola, Florida. So I'm just going to read the tour diary thing. And uh, I just kind of draw, took this out of the out of the thin air because I have all this stuff and I I copied and pasted it so I could read it. And I hope you guys enjoy it. So this is my first band I ever had in my entire life, Chronic Chaos, <clears throat> and I'm going to read 
the entry from January 25th, 2003 from Pensacola, Florida. Here we go. It felt so nice to actually get a hotel last night. It rarely happens, so when we can afford it, we take full advantage. We were only about 45 minutes from Pensacola, so we took our time. We ate a nice sit-down lunch and decided to go to the beach and hang out for a while. We walked out on the huge pier in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. We took a few pictures and enjoyed the sun. Once we got into Pensacola, we went to the mall to kill some time. There were actually flyers up everywhere in the mall. We had been waiting on this show for the entire tour as tonight we are playing with Under Oath. Under Oath is a great band and super, super nice dudes. They're also huge in the South, and that happens to be where we're playing tonight. Fast forward to the show. We went on first. The place was packed. The venue, which was called the end of the line, might have been able to normally hold 150 people max, but there were four to 500 crammed into it. We barely had any room for our amps on the small stage as people crowded the area. It was amazing. We got a great crowd response. They all seemed to really like us. This was easily the best show of the tour. It was great. We found out after we played the show that it was sold out. So counting last night's show with Glass Eater and The Beautiful Mistake, that's two sold-out shows in a row. We probably should not get used to this. We set up the merchandise outside the club as there was no room inside. We sold like four boxes of CDs and ten or so shirts, by far a record for our merch sales. When sales stalled, we forced our way back into the club to watch Under Oath. They killed it. So much passion and energy. The crowd went off. I swear the walls were sweating. After the show, we settled up with the promoter, who actually gave us more than the guarantee due to the show selling out, even though I'm pretty sure we were definitely not the reason that it did. We said our goodbyes to the Under Oath guys and hit the road. Even though this show was the most profitable gig yet, we decided to drive through the night and save our cash. Next stop, Orlando. So there you go. That was from January 25th, 2003. Uh, my first band, my high school band, Chronic Chaos. We played for 10 years, man. I mean, it was a pretty serious band. But uh, when that band kind of fell apart, I started the Widow Jenkins, which was kind of more of a metal band. Uh, I've talked about that on the show as well. And then I played in a band called Brazil that was on Fearless Records. I played in Under, uh, under not Under Oath, <laughs> Underminded, which was on Kung Fu. I played with the Ataris. So Chronic Chaos was kind of the beginning of everything that I ended up doing later in music. And any success I had, I, I have to go back to those early tours with Chronic Chaos because that's where I met people. And I never said no. I, I talk about that quite a bit on the show. If you, if you want any kind of thing, like you want to work in the music industry or you want to be an actor or you want to do anything in the arts, just always say yes. You want me to go sell merchandise? Yes. You want me to clean the toilet on your tour bus? Yes. Like just say yes and things will happen. You got to put yourself in the right place at the right time. So uh, shout out to my dudes from Chronic Chaos. We all still talk. We're all still close. Uh, Jason is in California and then uh, Aaron is in Indianapolis uh, Troy, our singer and bass player, is probably a half hour away from me in this little town called Gas City. So we're all pretty much in the same area, but Jason, uh, our drummer, is now out in California. So uh, shout out to my Chronic Chaos guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the tour diary. Um, this se segment might come back. You know, just keep asking for it. I had like literally three or four people say, I love the tour diary. So I thought I'd, I'd give you guys another taste of it. But that is it. That is the intro. 
Um, if you guys listen to this, I'm always amazed if people listen to the intros or they just skip right to the chat. So uh, if you listen to the intros, thank you so much. I love you more than the other listeners. Not much more, just a little bit more. So that's it. Without further ado, I'm going to give you what you guys came for. This is my conversation with Mr. Jay Bentley from the amazing, legendary Bad Religion. Here we go. And I'm on the line with Mr. Jay Bentley from Bad Religion. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm hanging in there. <laughs> hanging in there. <laughs> that's, that's awesome, man. I'm, uh, I'm super excited to have you on the program today. Uh, I've met you a couple times. I'm sure you don't remember that. I used to play in a band called the Ataris. No, I remember, but it was a hundred years ago, like forever. It was, I think the last time that you and I actually spoke in person was uh, Warp Tour 2009 and catering. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's always, always Warp Tours is where I remember all of that coming from. I mean, you guys, you're Santa Barbara band, right? Uh, well, Indiana, actually, that's where I'm at now. Chris Rowe, the lead singer, uh, who's like the only original member, he came from the same area I'm at in Indiana, but he lived in Santa Barbara for quite a while. Yeah, because my sister's in Santa Barbara, so I was always like, oh, wait, that, they're like a local band, but Santa Barbara to me was always like Lagwagon and other bands. I'm like, huh, <laughs> the cars came out of Santa Barbara. I go, that's weird, but now I get it. Yeah, yeah, we're, uh, we're Midwest guys, but Chris, when he first got <laughs> signed to Kung Fu, he moved out there because Derek, who used to be in Lagwagon, was the first drummer, because when he got signed, he didn't have a drummer, so that's how he I mean, ended all, up out there. Now, now, all of a sudden, it all comes together. So at the beginning of the of these episodes, I've been asking everybody because it's on everybody's mind. We're living through these very strange times, the pandemic, the coronavirus. I know that you guys had some stuff that you canceled that was going it's affected by what's going on. How has it been affecting your day-to-day -day life? Are you like taking precautions? Like what's going on? I know you're in California. It's a little bit stricter out there than where I'm at. Well, I mean, whether I think that I don't I don't think it would matter where I lived. I would wear a mask and I would wash my hands and I would stay away from people because uh, the singer in my band has a PhD in, in biology. Yeah. So, so he and I get to talk a lot about, you know, what, what can and can't be done. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the day-to-day -day life of not being on the road after, I, I think we, we haven't had a year off in 30 years. That's crazy, I, man. I, I can't remember one that we've had a year off. So, you know, once we, I, I guess it was around March where we really thought that this was going to get bigger than what people were saying. And we just, what, what was being asked of us was to postpone our dates. Yeah. Which basically meant that if you were holding a ticket, you couldn't get your money back. And this was a time when people were starting to realize they were going to be out of work for a long time. Uh, so we just canceled, which meant that you could refund your ticket and get your money back. Cause there was no reason in sitting on a ticket worth 40 bucks if you needed to buy food. Well, and I mean, a lot of people are saying now I see these articles every day on the internet, live nation, all these places might not have any shows until 2022. So I, I think it's very respectful of you guys to go ahead and cancel as opposed to what the other, a lot of the other bands are postponing and those people are just eating that ticket cost for maybe two years, you know? Possibly. Right. And, uh, but you know, I, I don't want to say that it was, uh, uh, I, I'll give, I'll give bands and people the benefit of the doubt that they were being hopeful that it would turn around. I mean, if you go back and look at my Instagram feed, my first live post about things starting to change 
uh, I postponed that tour with the Alkaline Trio because I was really hopeful that by the fall, there would be some sort of a handle on this. Yeah. Uh, and obviously following up with the next one, maybe a month later, which was, this is, this is not going to change. This isn't going to get better anytime soon. So we canceled. And that was, not only was it that tour, but it was everything. Europe, you know, our whole year, we just said, look, we're just basically going to take, take 2020 as a calendar year and just take that calendar and put it on top of 2021. Yeah. But, we're, but that being said, we didn't say that we were going to etch that in stone. We just said, this is our, this is, this is our hope, but we're not going to confirm anything because by 2021, things could not have improved. And, and then we'd have to cancel again. So I said, let's be smart about this and not have to do this twice. Yeah. So we're in a wait and see mode like most other bands of like, well, when, when it's safe to do so, all of us will come back out. I mean, I, I know that you guys, you know, you guys have been around for so long, you know, 40 years. That's, that's an insane career. You guys have these diehard fans and I know that people travel to see you guys. Like if you guys aren't coming to where they live, they might get yeah. on an airplane and go two or 3000 miles to go see you guys. So that whole idea as well, there's that economical like aspect to it where maybe they didn't just buy a ticket. Maybe they got right. an Airbnb, they got a, a flight and everything. So right. I, I still, I think it's so many bands at that point, I saw they were just postponing and that just, Man, this right. thing, this thing is so crazy, and with our current administration, who knows how long it's going to last, right? Well, you know, the, uh, the uh, first of all, on, on the first part of that, that the first tour that we had this year, which was with Alkaline Trio, is definitely one of those tours that people wanted to travel for. And I was getting personal messages from people uh, that I knew personally that were traveling out of England to come to the states to see that tour. And that was when I started to realize, look, we, we need to have an answer here. We're not going to get an answer from anybody else. We need to have an answer. We need to just basically say, uh, you'll, you'll pardon the expression, we need to shit or get off the pot. Yeah, yeah. We can't just sit here anymore. We need to make a decision. And I know for a fact that we aren't going on tour. That, that had to happen. Uh, the second part of where we are as, as, as our country goes, you know, I've heard people say like, well, you know, Europe might open. And I said, they're not going to let us in. Yeah. I mean, our passport's kind of useless you know, we, right as, now. As of right now, America is the pandemic. <laughs> you know, we're pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that that's the thing I, you know, touring over my life, my, my career of being on the road, I always met people from other countries that were like, you're so lucky to be from America because your passport can get you kind of wherever you want to go. And yeah. our passports are kind of useless now. And it's, I feel like, I mean, I'm still an avid traveler, even though I'm not on the road anymore. And I really hope that this changes because it, it kind of changes your whole life. If you like to travel abroad, because who knows when we're going to be let in. If it's something that you enjoy, it certainly changes uh, where you can and can't go. But for people like us, if it's, if it's our business, if it's our livelihood, uh, it 100% affects uh, a, a large portion of your job. I, I, you know, I, I, um, I'm quick to tell my, my peers in my neighborhood, uh, you know, none of who are in bands that, that my industry will, will be the last to get saved. Yeah. We are just, we're just a luxury. And, you know, if you look at it, just think of the Titanic where the band playing as it sinks. Cause that's, 
we're it. We, we don't get a life jacket or a boat. We just basically uh, will be the last thing to get, to get any attention to, which is probably okay because, you know, there, there are more important things than that. Now, you guys uh, recently put out, uh, actually just within the last couple of days, this new version of Faith Alone, which was an orig- originally on Against the Grain. It's a little bit more subdued. It's more like there's pianos going on. And and it does really kind of feel right in the times that we're living in right now. Have you guys decided to do anything else like live streams or anything? Or was that just something you wanted to do just to kind of, you know, give the fans something to chew on while this stuff's going on? Well, honestly... That was that song in particular was organic because Greg just recorded the piano part and the vocals at home and sent it to Brett. He just did it and sent it to Brett and goes, I don't know if this is of any interest to you. Yeah. And and Brett loved it and and did some production work on it, brought in Jamie and did some more work, you know, kind of uh making it what it is. And it it feels fitting. It just I don't I don't think there was any intention of it coinciding with anything. But obviously we have a book coming out in a week, and um, it just it, it really was one of those things that Greg just did and said I don't know if this is worth anything, and it was. Um, we've talked about live streaming, but obviously Greg and and Brian live on the East Coast, and the rest of us are West Coast guys. And I don't think we want to do a Zoom concert where like we're all we all have our own boxes. We'd have to we'd want to be together and you know present the band as it could. But we've all spoken about how we feel that the audience is fifty percent of our show. Yeah, it really. Is. Yeah. Like when we're playing a live concert, what's happening with the crowd is just as as important as what's happening on the stage. Really hard to replicate that in in a in a studio environment. Yeah. So we're we're. We're discussing our options. Obviously, uh, we want to do something, but <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you got to think outside the box, right? Kinda, yeah. <laughs> think outside the box. So, um, it's it's a when people are saying, "Oh, are you writing new music?" It's like, well, we just put out a new record last year. Yeah, and so we didn't really fulfill our obligation to that music of like touring on it and and presenting it the way we wanted to and with the way music is you know streaming is now the the de facto way of getting music so they're even saying they i hate that uh the idea of the album format may be dead and you just put out a song or two every couple of months and that's just the new way of releasing music yeah, I, I mean, I'm still an old school guy. Like, I like holding the vinyl or the CD and reading the notes and seeing the artwork. And I, I've Me got, too, but that might not necessarily be the way. <laughs> well, I, I teach guitar for a living, and all of my students are like, you know, in high school, junior high. And I have these talks with them all the time, and like, some of them have never owned a CD. And it, it just yeah. kind of it kind of blows my mind. I'm like, when I was young, you would get the the artwork, and and sometimes you'd buy an album because the artwork was cool. You wouldn't even know who the band was, and it's weird how people find music nowadays. Does that ever kind of enter your mind? Bad religion being around as long as you guys have how you're finding new fans, or are you more just kind of worried about kind of nurturing the people that are already along for the ride? I, in all honesty, I don't think we're worried too much because you, you kind of can't 
you can't worry about that. You just have to roll with it. No yeah. matter what, no matter what is presented to you, which I guess for, for, for people that are in the business, they're, they're either hurdles or they're opportunities. And, you know, for us, because we're old, they're both. Yeah. Because all of a sudden we have to adapt to a new format. Uh, but we have to look a little further as to what the potential is for that format. And if we're, and if we're spending too much time worrying about whether the people who like us will be, will be as adaptive to that new format as we are, then you're, you're sort of, you're, you're entering a different business. And, and that's not really what we do. We just, we create art and then just sort of unleash it. So you mentioned the new book. That was one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on the program. Uh, I just did an episode with Jim Ruland, uh, the guy that like put all everything together and kind of wrote it. Um, and he was kind of taking me through, you know, interviewing you guys and talking to you about everything. What was your experience like while the book was being put together? Like, was it easy to come up with stuff or since you guys have been playing for 40 years, was it kind of a challenge? For me, it was easy to come up with stuff because I just, I have this sort of flow memory of like, if, if someone says, triggers a memory in me, they just, they just give me that Pavlovian peanut butter. And all of a sudden I'm talking about, oh, I remember on the Warp Tour, we were doing, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so for me, it was simple. I think for some of the other guys, it was harder because they just, they've even said they don't remember a lot of things the way they were because it's been a long time. And maybe those, those memories weren't as imprinted on them as me. I, I do think uh, in, in looking at this book and realizing that we have 40 years, a lot of the stuff that, that Jim and I spoke about and that made it into the book are only things that, that we spoke about and that there are so many other stories that we just, that we just never touched upon because they never came up. But how do you cover 40 years of, of history and, and being in a band and touring and all the things that have happened without some, someone jogging your memory? Yeah, I, was, I wondered if like you guys as a band you know, had an idea of kind of the narrative that you wanted because with that many years, that, that long of a career, it has to be hard to kind of you know, whittle that down and like what parts are going to be good for the book and what parts might not be great for the book. You know, it was, that was sort of the agreement was, is that we were going to let Jim guide that Jim was going to be the captain of that ship. And Jim was going to decide what was worth pursuing and, and, you know, in what maybe in a, in a scenario, he would talk to me about something and he would go back and find Pete Finestone and talk about this and get a, and get a different version of that. Then come back to me, Pete said this, and I would go, Oh yeah, then this happened. And that would, and you know, he would feel that that was a story worth pursuing because it was funny or interesting, or maybe one of those uh, moments in a 40 year history where the, you know, the, after that occurrence, the band changed in one way or another, whether it was an album coming out or a riot at a concert or even, you know, being asked to, to open for a band that, that was awkward. But after that, we had a different footing maybe within, within the festival community. 
I was actually going to bring that up a little bit later, but I'd like to talk about it now. You talked about maybe an awkward situation. Um, I remember when you guys did the tour opening for Blink. I, yep. I remember there being kind of a lot of people that were a little upset. I mean, in the the punk rock police, you know, like sure. like the bullsh- right, but bullshit. We, but we knew that was going to happen. We totally knew that was going to. I I did. I knew it was going to happen. But I but you know I, I saw that tour as sort of a long tour investment, a long a long shot investment because Link's audience for us was much younger than us. They were, they were in their thirteens. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we were, you know, we're 18 to 25 kind of skater punker guys. And I thought, you know, if we go and play and, and make some kind of an impression, chances are seven years from now, these kids might actually go like, I like that band. Yeah. And it, it was, it, you know, and it did work out that way where, Years and years later, people were like, oh, I saw you open for Blink in, in Tampa at the Lightning Arena. I was like, cool. That was good. <laughs> Not to mention that of, of, of all of the bands that sort of broke big, they were really the only band that asked us to go out with them. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I've, I've thought about that a lot. Like, you know, uh, Christina sent me the book. I went over a bunch of it. And I love it. And and I've been a fan of you guys for so long, even back to high school, like way before I ever met you guys or played Warp Tour or anything. And I've often thought, you know, you guys did sign to a major when everything was kind of happening. You had a lot of success in the indie world still to this day, classic, legendary punk band. But so many of your peers seem to kind of go to that next level, be it Rancid or Green Day or Offspring or, or Blink it was always weird to me that those guys didn't take you out. It almost seems like it would be a, a pairing made in heaven, you know? Well, in, in talking with Billy Joe and Mike, their take on asking us to go out was that it was an insult to us. Okay. Yeah. And I, 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 I understood that, but I said, but you should leave that to us. Yeah. And I'm telling you that we're not insulted. We would go with you in the same way that we took you out in 93, right before Dookie, we would go with you because we would like that opportunity as well. Uh, the Offspring, they were label mates, but at the same time, they I think by the time they got to Columbia, the, we, we sort of had, a, there was a little bit of distaste between the two bands, even though we didn't really have anything um, in common other than both coming off Epitaph. And Blink really was the only band that, that was, we, we want you guys to come on tour. When, when, they, when that whole thing came together, was that more of like kind of a manager booking agent thing? Or was that the guys saying, hey, come on out? Like- Mark, Mark called me directly. And, and just at, what he said was, I know this is crazy, but would you ever consider this? And I said, absolutely. When you guys signed to Atlantic to do recipe for hate was there backlash then from the whole punk rock police bullshit? Because I love, I love you guys because even, you know, going out with blink, you know, everything you guys have ever done in your career, it seems like you kind of say, fuck that. We're going to do what we want. We're going to continue to grow and continue to do things that are great for us as a band and us as people. So when you guys made that jump from epitaph, which was basically started as a vehicle for bad religion, 
I mean, how was all, how was the backlash from people or like, did you notice any when that happened? We did, but we also expected it. So it wasn't like we, you know, you know, when you do something and then it backlashes against you when you go, Oh, I didn't see that coming. Well, we saw it coming. We already knew. We said, this is going to happen, but it's okay because we, you know, I worked at Epitaph as did Brett and seeing what we were doing day to day and wondering if there were just something a little further along than what we could do. Here's two guys with a fucking forklift on Sunset, Santa Monica Boulevard going like, well, if we two can do this, what, imagine what those guys can do. That was the thought. And, and, you know, we just, we weighed all the pros and cons and said, I think this is okay. And at the time, um, you know, this is, this is more, uh, independently speaking, Danny Goldberg, who was Nirvana's manager and Bonnie Raitt's manager was an A&R guy at Atlantic. And he was the one that we were talking with. And Danny's a great guy. And he really understood everything we wanted to do and who we were. He really got it. And in these, inside the industry, Danny was thought like, this guy's going to be president someday of Atlantic. And he liked us and we felt he's, he's our A&R guy and he's going to be president. He totally gets us. We're in a pretty good spot here. So it, we just took a chance and said, let's go do that. Let's see what happens. Unknowing that like, well, they groomed him to become president of RCA <laughs> and he left Atlantic and we're like, but he's our guy. Yeah. And you know, things changed and, and, and you know, it, it, it became one of those scenarios of, of, well, okay, now we've learned a lesson. We learned a lot. I learned a lot. And, and, and for me, it was a good, um, it was a good lesson. It wasn't bad. It, I don't, I don't ever think of it as negative. I just think of now I know. And, and coming back to Epitaph was like, okay, now we're back at home and now we're back doing exactly what we were when we left and, and okay. Hey guys, it's Chris breaking into the action to tell you about a brand new sponsor for the podcast, Spam. Not Spam, Spam. What is Spam, you say? Is it music? Is it art? A label? A poster? Or a festival? Spam combines all of this and so much more. S-B-A-M. Four letters in punk rock to watch out for. There is hardly any band or artist in the punk rock world that has not worked with Spam before. For the latest news, records, art, or to check out their iconic music festival, please visit www.sbam.rocks. That is www.sbam.rocks. I was going to tell you a story really quickly before I forget, but uh, on um, Stranger Than Fiction... You guys had that song Infected, which kind of became a single and, and, you know, that record did really well. When I was younger, really younger, um, I was into punk rock and we used to go to this pizza hut in the next town over for like parties or whatever. And on their jukebox, the only punk song they had was Infected by Bad Religion. 
And my dad would be like, hey, here's five bucks. Go play some music. And I would play that song like 40 times in a row. (laughs) And me and my friends did this every time we went to that Pizza Hut. And I'm pretty sure people were sick of hearing the song. But to us, it was like, well, I'm going to play this or Smoke on the Water. I'm going to listen to Bad Religion. Right. You know, I mean, that was what one of the things that we had hoped to gain from, from that distribution machine was exactly what you talk about. Like our albums being available in Target and, and us being uh, more accessible in, in places that, that we just couldn't seem to get ourselves into on Epitaph. Yeah. That, just, that, that was one of the main reasons of saying, well, they're going to get us into the places that, that we don't have that, that connection. You were talking about working at Epitaph that whole time when like, you know, Offspring hit and, you know, the, the, the legend is that you guys couldn't even like keep enough CDs for the orders. Like it was just insane. When, when that record was getting ready to come out, did you guys have any inkling that it was going to, I mean, maybe not be as big as it got, but just listening to it, like thinking, wow, this is really something, or was it just another release? I okay. I I wasn't there when Smash happened. Okay, because I, that was in 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 bad religion history. Uh, what happened after Recipe for Hate was that Greg had always been in school, and our touring time was just relegated to summer and some breaks, Easter, Christmas, that kind of stuff. And after Recipe for Hate uh, was when Greg announced. I'm not going to go back to school and I want to spend more time on the road. And Brett said, my label is, is blossoming right now. And I need to spend less time on the road because I've, I've got this business that's really starting to become something. This is all pre smash. And I'm in the middle working at epitaph, but in bad religion. And I, I, I thought about it for a while and I said, well, I, I can either answer phones and drive a forklift or I can be a bass player in a band. Yeah. Pretty easy decision, and right? <laughs> not really, because honestly, driving a forklift and answering a phone was stability. Yeah. Yeah. Never, I'd never not worked a day in my life. I've never not had a job. I was going to leave a job and be one of those like I'm in a band, and that's my job. Yeah, uh, but I, but that was the decision that I made, and and so all of those things were sort of unbeknownst to us, culminating into Stranger Than Fiction being the album that it was. Brett leaving, uh, us getting Brian, and continuing to tour ten times what we used to tour in the past, and becoming this. Uh, you know, the touring machine by 1995, we were probably playing 160 shows a year. Wow. And so that was jumping from maybe 50 shows a year. We were tripling our touring, which when you, when you look at it, Brett was right that there was no way he was going to be able to do that. Yeah. And, and run epitaph or like, you know, and, and had he maybe smash would have never been the album that it was. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense because I'm sure that there's a lot of stuff that's not talked about in all the documentaries and everything of the behind the scenes stuff that made smash 
get out there and get in everybody's ears, you know? Right. Right. Because a lot of that stuff was happening uh, out of necessity. And, and I, you know, I always tell people that, that want to talk about this DIY ethic and they want to give us uh, props for being DIY. And I go, you don't understand. DIY is not a choice. No. You do it, you do it because there is no alternative. Yeah. And the things that Brett was doing was, uh, you know, he was trying to figure out how to enter this giant machine from the back door. And did very well to be. I mean, when you look at it, you're like, dude, you're you were just a guy in a warehouse <laughs> that figured out how to how to make this album a hit. It's crazy, man. It I, is. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about your time at Epitaph. Um, you know, I know that Fat Mike spent some time working there or interning there, and that kind of you know, I, I think it's great that if you like this kind of music you're almost definitely into epitaph and fat bands and it's kind sure. of, it's kind of cool that epitaph kind of if it didn't exist fat wouldn't really exist so it's it i wanted to hear if you had any kind of just stories or anything funny about the time that mike spent there working at epitaph with you guys i i would say that that the 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 bigger part of mike and it wasn't when he was working there but mike would come in and we would talk uh, literally, he and I would talk about the mistakes that I made or that I said, we did this and don't do that because you don't need to do this. But we didn't know until we did it and said, shit, we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah. And so literally just gave him a list of don't do these things and at least you'll have a, a, better, a better chance at survival as a business. Uh, just a lot of stuff that, that we had to learn about uh, you know, mailing mailing free albums out, and and who was more important than other in the terms of like getting your records reviewed, even just something as simple as that, because you could send five thousand records out, and when you're a small indie, sending five hundred records out is is expensive. They're free. Yeah, and you know, so all of a sudden you're like, don't do this, because we realized we were sending we were sending albums to Banjo Weekly. <laughs> Don't do that. You know, stuff like that. So I, I think that, you know, Mike was going to pick the bands that, that he loved and could work with in the same way that Brett was picking the bands that he loved and could work with. Uh, and and the, the benefit that Mike had was, you know, kind of like Canada, just watching another, watching someone make all the mistakes and go, don't do that. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> analogy, man. <laughs> so, uh, I had, I had one question like you guys, you know, Greg and Brian were in the band when, when, uh, Mr. Brett left, when he comes back subsequently, you guys don't like get rid of anybody. You just have kind of three guitars going on when you're writing songs or even recording. Is that kind of a tough thing? I mean, cause you guys aren't Iron Maiden, so there's not like two harmonies and a rhythm. Like what's the process like when you're a writing with three guitars and then recording as well? Okay. Um, when Brett came back, he made it pretty clear that he was coming back as a writer and, and he, you know, he's in bad religion, but he's pretty much only going to be the Brian Wilson. He's going to write songs. He's going to work in the studio. Uh, he really enjoys this outlet for his art, but he doesn't want to come on the road. He actually came out on the road for the process of belief tour 
and said, I can never do that again. That, that was crazy. I was gone too long. I just can't do this. And we were all, dude, you didn't have to come, but we were so glad you did because it was really fun to have three guitar players. It was really fun. Um, as far as the, the studio time goes, uh, Brian is a guitar player's guitar player. And if you, there, there's, I think there's a part in this book where we talk about this philosophy that we have, the fastest driver drives the car. And so when it comes to guitar parts, we just put a guitar in Brian's hand and say, play these parts, play this song, play, play it in different ways. And, and that makes up the bulk of the guitar work. There are things that Brett does that only Brett can do. And I've known that since 1980. He's just got a, he's got a thing about him that only he can do. And the same with Greg Hetson. So it wasn't that it was confusing in the terms of who was going to do what. Uh, we were pretty, we were we were pretty adamant about this is how it's going to be done, and it made it simple. And we never worried about like being a three guitar band because yeah, yeah. we didn't we didn't see Brett as a true guitar player in the band. He's sort of a special bonus, which was totally awesome. When you guys are writing stuff, I mean, you know, we've talked about it a lot. Forty years as a band, has have things changed? Like when you guys are writing songs. Is, is Brett coming up with riffs or progressions? Are you coming up with progressions? And then, you know, Greg comes in and with some lyrics he already has and makes them fit. Like, how does that process go? It's always a little different. Always. Every song is a little different. Maybe the, the biggest consistency is that Greg's songs are a lot more complete. Because Greg, out in Ithaca, he's just, he's just writing songs to, almost to completion. Wow. And so when he shows up, it's like, here's my song. Here's how it goes. Okay. And sometimes uh, Brett will go, here's, here's, here's a song on acoustic guitar. You guys just figured out. But, but Brett will also, uh, he'll sit and listen and be choosy about what parts he likes and what parts he doesn't. The, there's very few free-for-alls anymore. Where it's like, just go out there and jam and see what happens. <laughs> it, that, that doesn't really that doesn't really go anywhere. Is there a, is there a lot of rehearsal? Cause you know, you know, when you're a younger band and you know, you have to go into the studio and you're worried about the clock and the money and whatnot. I mean, do you guys have the songs kind of ready to go when you go in or is there some, some room for messing with the arrangements and doing stuff like that? It's uh, yes and no. <laughs> um, I think that the, that the, the, the idea of, pre-production has sort of flown out the window and everybody has an idea of what the songs are before we show up. So maybe you haven't played it together, but you already know what you're coming in with. And, and that time when the, you know, when the red light goes on and, and the, and the tape is rolling, you already kind of know what you're going to do. And if you're, if you're making changes on the fly, it's, uh, it's rare, but it happens. Yeah. It, but if you compare that with like a suffer, suffer, we were in this, we were at uncle's rehearsal in the Valley and we knew exactly what songs we wanted to do. But the other part of that is that we always recorded at West beach, yeah, which Brett owned. So we were, when you talk about being on the clock, we, we didn't have a clock. We just were like, whatever, we'll just go in there for five days, but not like from 10 AM to 10 PM. We just went in for five days and never left. Yeah. 
we would just be living in the studio. So we, we've had a lot of, uh, I, I don't want to call them unfair advantages, yeah. but we've had a lot of unfair advantages over the years of, you know, having our label, having a studio, having all of these things at our disposal that disposal that really allowed us uh, the freedom to make the records that we've made. I mean, you guys were kind of ahead of your time because that's kind of how everything's going now where you can just record an album in your bedroom that sounds like a major label release and you can, everything can be in house. So I kind of think maybe you guys did have some not unfair advantages, but you guys made that happen. You know, I, well, I, once again, it goes back to the DIY thing. We made a demo tape and we shopped it around in 1981 and, and nobody liked it. They told us to our face, you're terrible. And, and, uh, and Brett eventually got mad enough to say, we're going to do it ourselves. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine what our lives or our career would look like had we been signed to Alternative Tentacles. And probably a lot different, honestly. Probably a lot, <laughs> probably a lot shorter. So <laughs> you brought up recording, you know, Suffer. You know, a lot of people, you're, I celebrate your entire catalog. <laughs> <laughs> I always love saying that. I think that's a great saying, but, uh, you know, suffer and against the grain and no control and, and, you know, recipe for hate. Like there are just, there's these seminal records that you guys put out that mean so much to people. When you listen to those now, do they kind of resonate with you and you remember those times or like, are you one of those guys that doesn't like to kind of listen to the old stuff and just push on to the new stuff? Like, how do you feel when you like pop in no control and listen to it. Like it's more of a, it's more of a Polaroid picture for me than, than, uh, uh, you know, sometimes I listen to a song that I haven't heard in 30 years and go, God, that's a good song. (laughs) And I, I have forgotten about it. Uh, but mostly it's, it's that I remembered the vibe, the feeling like what was happening to us in our lives and, and, uh, and our careers and, and where the band was. Um, a lot of times, if, if, if I take Suffer as an example of what do you remember from that the most, uh, is this underlying feeling when we were finished recording and we were maybe a third into the mixing and Brett looked at me and I just kind of said, this is really good. But... I didn't think that anyone would ever hear it because at the time we were, we were a non-existent band and there, you know, this, this, this punk rock did not exist. And I thought, uh, we're, we're making this record in the dark and, and, and only in hindsight, when I think about that, was it maybe that's like that, it's like a scientific discovery of like, I was trying to do something else and I discovered penicillin. It's like, oh, crap. So those memories are, are sort of what pops up when I listen to an album, uh, you know, taking, taking out the songs that I go, oh, that, I forgot about that part. Or the, the times when I listen and I go, oh, I wish I hadn't played that. Because there's, there's some of those too where I, why did I play that line? That's dumb. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's more of a memory. Yeah. What's the, uh, 
is there a process for choosing a set list? I mean, I know playing festivals, you have less time headlining, you know, club shows or whatever. You've got more time, but with a catalog, like you guys have, I'm sure there are some songs you have to play, but then like, how do you guys kind of pick and choose to figure out what's going to be on the set? We're basically, we're, we're running 28 to 32 song sets. That's about what we, on our headlining, we're 28 to 32 songs, depending on, what era we're choosing from because a lot of the two minute songs, obviously I can pack more songs into a set and right. There are, there are always going to be the, the, the five or six must plays. And if we're, you know, I mean, we're, we're kind of always working on new material. So you want to play something off of whatever your latest record was. Um, and so it, it, it kind of leaves you with this, 10 to 12 song bubble of like, well, now what? Yeah. And sometimes you can play a song like uh, Beyond Electric Dreams or uh, Fields of Mars, and that takes up a lot of time. Or you can throw in four one-minute songs yeah. and say, oh, it's, it, it changes sort of every day. I, I tend to go back and like, we're playing in Cleveland. And so I'll go back to the last time we played in Cleveland and look at the set list and go, okay, I'm going to play the exact opposite of that. Because I, I, I always, like you said, I, we have a big catalog and I always feel like if we're rolling into a town, maybe once every couple of years, I want to try to give as, as broad a spread of, of songs as I can to the locals that are coming to these shows. I saw these guys a couple of years ago. They played a lot of stuff off. Uh, against the grain but this time when we came in it was more process of belief forward heavy newer stuff it's it's really tough we did a we did a tour a few years ago it was called battle of the centuries and so what i did was everything pre-2000 was one night and everything post-2000 was the second night and I made posters and told everybody this is what was happening. But the amount of shit that I got from people that showed up on night two and said, you didn't play Suffer. It's like, well, you're not looking at the poster. <laughs> so you kind of can't win. You, can, you just got to do what you got to do. And, and, and at the end of the day, the truth is that we're trying to play a show that makes us on stage happy. Yeah. And, and that we feel that we can deliver without uh, looking like we're just sleepwalking through it because that's, I, we've all seen, we've all seen the band that has played the same show for the last 10 years. And you're like, they don't, they, they just look like they're just kind of automatons. Are, are there any songs in particular that for you personally, when you play it, you can kind of tell how the show is going to go. Like, is there something that's like a staple for you that you enjoy playing more than some of the other songs? No, but I can tell by the first song how it's going to go. It's just, you know, you know, when you get on stage and, and, and you finish that first song and you just go, you're going to give, you're going to, you know, you, you write a set, that first song is going to be the thing that you hit them in the face with. And it's like, if, if they don't respond the way you think they were, then okay. And that's more, more for festivals. Yeah. Headlining shows are always easy because they're there to see you. Yeah. Festivals are always that thing of like, I don't know. We're on at 3 p.m. and Muse is closing. 
they're probably not going to care. You're like, oh. does that <laughs> does that inform the choosing then? Like when you play those festivals, do you try to like give them like the most dense batch of awesome bad religion you can in that time? Well, there's two schools of thought. When we went out on tour with Pearl Jam, we were opening every night with with 21st Century Digital Boy because I just thought if there's anything that these people may know of us, it will be this song. And so let's go out and, and play the one song first that people will go, oh, I've heard of these guys. And then whatever happens after that is sort of like, okay, fair enough. Uh, but there's other times when we're on festivals and I look at who's on our stage and I'll, I'll just go, man, fuck this and play the exact opposite of what they would know. And if it looks like, oh, you know, uh, you know, this kind of mellow folk band is following us. I'm going to play the most punk rock set. <laughs> you, know, you, you have 30 minutes on stage. I'm going to play 26 songs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just to fuck with people, just to go like, well, they can't, they're not going to get that again today. Dude, I remember when I first got into punk rock, I was very kind of confused because before punk rock, I was a metal guy. So like Metallica has eight songs on an album and then I would get I would get a no effects album or whatever, and there'd be like 30 songs on the album. And I'm like, it's not fair. But then I was like, oh, these punk guys, they're getting their point across without an eight-minute opus and guitar solos, you know? Right. 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 That was that was that was just we just well, we didn't do it. You know, when we started, my my feeling is that when we started. One of the reasons we didn't have those things is because honestly, we just weren't good enough. Yeah. We didn't have that technical skill to do all the, the stuff. Um, then when, when speed metal sort of burgeoned out of, out of what the deflated life of punk rock in 85, 86, cause LA was, you couldn't play anywhere, but you could play. If you were a punk rock band in 1985, you could not play any venue. But if you grew your hair out and played a guitar solo, you could play that same venue, <laughs> playing the same songs. This was the most nuts stuff. It's like, wait, you're the same punk rock band. You've just put a guitar solo in there and grew your hair out. I'm like, this is okay. You guys are smart. <laughs> that was, so that, that, that sort of gave way to everybody going like, we can put guitar solos in, even if they're not good. Fuck these people, man. We can do this. <laughs> <laughs> you're talking about kind of the the – the early days of the band a while back, I'm always interested and this might be a really dumb question, but you know, bad religion is, has now become this big iconic band name with, you know, the cross buster logo and everything. What were some of the names maybe that didn't make the cut? Were you guys, or was it always bad religion from day one? Well, no, I mean, we had a, we had a, I guess maybe a, a two week journey down the hole of like, let's pick a band name. And it's just smegma and head cheese and, and, <laughs> and you know, fart sniffers, just dumb names that didn't really make any sense. Uh, if I remember, I'm pretty sure Bad Religion came up on the first or second day and it kept coming back. What about that one, Bad Religion? And, you know, like any other band name, whether it's Jethro Tull or Leonard Skinner, things don't make a whole lot of sense or Pink Floyd. They don't make sense, but when the band becomes the band, then the name has a meaning. Yeah. Because you, you associate it with that band. And bad religion was just two words put together that was like, okay, yeah. And then, you know, and then Brett came with the crossbuster one day and we went like, 
Oh yeah, that's really good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> well, I, I would like to personally thank you because there were two times that I got kicked out of school for a shirt. One was for a Metallica shirt and the other was for my Crossbuster shirt. So thank you guys yeah. for that. <laughs> We've done our job. You've done your Whatever job. Whatever that was. <laughs> well, hey, man, I've had you on the phone for a while. I have a couple listener questions. I always ask my social media people if they have any questions. Would you mind answering them? Sure. Okay, cool. So Jeff from Illinois says, was there anyone that you saw live when you were younger that personally influenced the way you play the bass? Uh, I think by the time I could sort of pay attention to bass players, Roger Rogerson from the Circle Jerks was sort of a visual that I, cause, and, and it, it's only, Roger was just super drunk and just like this, force he just i don't know he just like between roger and chuck dukowski chuck was this intense angry very focused uh and he would he was this is funny black flag was chuck was up and down with his head and greg in was no so it was the yes and no guys (laughs) chuck was there greg was this and so we'd be yes and no brothers and and so the the intensity of chuck uh sort of with the the just the insanity of Roger, this this just sort of never knowing what was going to happen with Roger, uh, was sort of a visual of what I thought I wanted to look like. It, I never got there, but that was sort of my 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 impression of like this is cool, this is good. Uh, and as far as playing, I you know maybe maybe Simonon was really the guy where I could I could play a little like him and and I and I liked the things that he did and maybe that's what I was bringing into bad religion early on was trying to be more uh of of what Paul was playing and and I suppose that would also be the long strap and everything else you just you know you you sort of take your cues from people that you like but they're visual cues and they have nothing to do with your ability to play yeah you know, now I would look back and go, this is all crazy. You know, I, I maybe I had a picture in my room uh, of them playing on stage with an amplifier, having no idea what that amplifier sounded like, but thinking, I have to buy that amplifier. <laughs> yeah, I totally, I totally get that, man. And, you know, it, it's a little ass backwards when you, like, you don't know what it sounds like. It doesn't matter. He's playing one. I know that you've played a lot of Fender products. I know you've done some Epiphone stuff as of late. When you were young and you were, you know, a burgeoning musician, what was your like dream instrument that you wanted? Uh, I, a Rickenbacker. Rickenbacker. Yeah, I, I my first bass when when I had a guitar, I, I had like a, a a Les Paul copy. When the band started, I had this Les Paul copy, and Greg said. We're starting a band, and I said, "Cool, I've got a guitar." He said, "You're playing bass," <laughs> and I said, "Shit." Yeah. <laughs> and I went to Sears. I went to Sears and bought this three-quarter scale jazz, whatever Sears was selling, um, and that was my first bass. And having that, I I I wanted a Rickenbacker because, at the time, I think my favorite band was the jam and Bruce Foxen was sort of, I just thought he was a great bass player. 
and I wanted a Rickenbacker. And so I ended up with a 4,000, which is the single pickup. Uh, not really a great choice for punk rock, but I'm 17 and I don't know any better. Yeah. Uh, broke that pretty quickly. And then uh, for some reason, when you're anti-everything, I was not going to play a P bass because that's what everybody played. So I played every bass other than a P bass until 1987 when I got my first P bass and went, oh, this is why everybody plays these. <laughs> and it was like, because I'm, I'm dumb and went, okay. And I never really looked back. And that that's just always been, always been the one. Awesome. Well, uh, Jeff, thank you for your question. Uh, Chris from Michigan wants to know if bad religion never material materialized, what do you think you would be doing with your life currently? That's a tough one. That is hard because I mean, I was, I was 16 when we started and, yeah. and you have to like imagine a complete other life, right? <laughs> I didn't really have a chance to go. I, I, when I, when I, when I got kicked out of school, I went and enrolled in junior college and I, uh, I took business law and psychology. Those were the two things that I was taking. I don't know why I hated the business class. Uh, but the psychology class was interesting. So maybe, I'd, I'd, I'd work at a gas station. <laughs> That's what I tell people all the time. If I, the, my only, only discernible skill is playing guitar. And if I didn't have that, I don't know what I'd be doing. No, I, I don't really know. I, I, I mean, it's so, it's so weird. I think, you know, it's, it's just impossible. It's impossible. To say. <laughs> I, you know, had I, had I been like, well, you know, before I started the band, I was in banking. I worked at 7-Eleven before I joined Bad Religion. <laughs> I was a stock boy. So that's, like, that's what I would be doing. I'd still be working at the 7-Eleven stocking the refrigerator. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much for that question. I have one more listener question. Uh, this is on more of a serious note, I guess. Scott from Canada says, do you know why Greg Hedson decided not to participate in the book? Uh, my understanding from Jim Ruland uh, Greg was pretty consistent about directing Jim to speak to his lawyer, which I, none of us understood why that was. And Jim said every, uh, every attempt was just sort of a dead end. And, you know, we had a publishing date and eventually Jim just said, look, I, I can't, I can't keep trying. He doesn't, he won't talk to me. And and, you know, the, our publisher said, look, you've got to hand in your manuscript. We need that now. And, and the door closed. Are, are you guys still like on speaking terms? Like, I mean, I, I don't need to rehash anything that happened or whatever, but do you, do you have a relationship with Greg right now? I don't, I don't talk to him any more than I talk to anybody else. Um, like Bob or, I mean, I, Bob came to a show at the observatory and we hung out for hours and just, it was just like Bob and, and me, like we'd always have been. Uh, I run into Brooks socially because our wives are friends. And so, and, and we have a lot of mutual friends and the Vandals guys. So I see Brooks a lot and Brooks and I are on, on obviously great terms. Um, I haven't seen Pete in a while, but we, Pete and I talk, I, you know, a couple times a year, we'll just talk about something. He'll call me and we'll talk about business stuff. 
but I don't talk to Greg. I, not not because I don't want to, but I just there just doesn't seem to be an opportunity to. Yeah, he was he was on the program uh, a couple years back, pretty recently after he left. Maybe I'm not sure. And he didn't he didn't really speak much about it. And a lot of people on on Instagram were wanting to know if like you know how you guys were with Greg. So, well, I, I you know I think the thing is 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 for us it was just a sense of of much like when Brett left, even though the circumstances were the the, the part of of leaving were different. Uh, but the fact that we needed to move forward wasn't different. So, you know, when, when, uh, Brett and I, Brett and I were having an argument on the phone when he quit, he just said, I quit. And I'm like, Oh shit. And I called Greg and said, this is not good. What do you want to do? And Greg said, I don't want to stop. I think we still have more to do. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm with that. And with Greg Hetson, we didn't really have to say, what do we want to do? There was never a thought that we need to move forward. We played a couple of shows as a four piece with just Brian and Greg turned to Brian and myself and said, you need to find a guy, take care of it. We need to, we need to keep moving. And so uh, that was just the long and short of it. So, you know, my last question and we can, we can get out of here. I've taken up enough of your time. Uh, after 40 years, which I know we keep talking about that, but it's, it's quite an accomplishment, man. Like in punk rock to have a career that spans four decades is pretty impressive. When you get up there on stage now, or when you're in the studio, do you still feel that passion? Does it still get you excited the way that it did back in the day? Yeah, I, I'm still totally nervous. I, I bite on my fingernails and, and if I still smoked, I would, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm passionate about what we do because I just ha- I have always loved it the same way that that Brett and Greg and and Brian uh, and and Jamie and anybody else that's ever been in uh, love what we do. We're we're a, we're you know we I, I guess the only thing that that has changed is. When we were 15, 16, we, we wanted to do this, we're told we couldn't, and said, well, then we're going to do it ourselves, because we like what we do. And now, we like what we do, and we get to do it whenever we want, because we've just, like you said, 40 years later, we're just doing what we want to do. But that, that 15-year-old in me of like, I want this to be good, because I, I like us is still there. And it's, I, and I see it in everybody. I see it in everything that we do. Uh, there have been times in the 40 years where we were our worst critic and it really, uh, it sort of, it hurt us because we would be in the studio really criticizing ourselves to the point of almost, uh, you know, inability. We were just, well, I don't know what to do. I'm so afraid. I don't want to do the wrong thing. And it took us a while to let go of that to where we are now, which is, yeah, it was good enough because that mentality is what made suffer. We knew that like, look, you, you can't, if you over rehearse something or overthink it, it just, it doesn't have that, that emergency, that intensity, that, that it's, it's as close to falling apart as it's going to get. 
<laughs> and then and it doesn't and the song ends and you go god that was good it's all about like the tension of thinking maybe it is going to fall apart at any time right right and 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 all of those feelings were very apparent on the last record that we did you know we're in the studio going like yes <laughs> and you know no one was just bored playing notes going oh, i wish this song would end it was like no everybody was just hanging on for dear life so it's all still there. We, we, we really do um, live and breathe this band. Yeah. And the cool part is, is that when we're not with the band, we're just out living our lives, which is probably why we've been able to do this for so long, because we're like, eh, we do that when we're together, and then when we're apart, we don't. Well, I, I tell you, man, it's been wonderful having you on the show today, and I think that's a good place to leave it. And it's a very nice segue. You said you guys do what you want. That is the name of the book that is coming <laughs> out, Do What You Want, The Story of Bad Religion. It comes out eight, uh, August 18th. Everybody out there needs to check it out. Jay, I've had so much fun today. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate your art so much. I've been a fan since I was 13 or 14 years old. So to get to to meet you the few times I have and now to kind of reconnect and really talk to you about stuff, it's been amazing. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, yeah. It was great catching up with you, Chris. That's really, it was fun times. Awesome, man. Well, when you guys have something new in the future, when the pandemic is over, please come back and hang out with me again, okay? For sure. Maybe live. Awesome. Maybe together. <laughs> Maybe together. <laughs> Tell all the guys I said what's up. I'm going to be pushing the book like crazy because I think it's an amazing book. And uh, I'll talk to you very soon, my friend. All right. All right. Talk to you later, man. Bye. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. So there it was, my conversation with Mr. Jay Bentley from Bad Religion. I had a blast chatting with Jay, and I cannot wait to have him back in the future for a part two, like he said, hopefully in person and not on Zoom. Although I got to say, I've, I've grown accustomed to these Zoom calls. I used to always do like FaceTime and Skype and stuff like that. Zoom has less glitches. I'm not going to say it's perfect, but Zoom does work a little bit better. And, you know, the first year or two, or the first year, year and a half of the podcast, I did all audio because I felt like, I felt like it sounded a little bit better because, you know, the, the phone or the computer was only using enough bandwidth for the audio, not the audio and the video. But I've got to say, when you can't be in person with somebody, having that video side there. It really does help the conversation flow, and uh, I, I don't think I'm going to go back to just audio. I mean, you're just hearing the audio, but we are seeing each other in a Zoom meeting as we're doing this. So uh, I don't get any money from Zoom, but shout out to Zoom. I, I wish I would have invested and bought some stock before the pandemic because, you know, I'm using the same technology that Jimmy Fallon and Conan is, is using right now. So thank you so much to Zoom for giving me a way to to do this podcast. So thank you very much. If you want to send me like, I don't know, a business account or some free stuff, go for it. If anybody at Zoom listens, I'm I'm here for you. So send, send away. But uh, that's it for this week. Before I forget though, um, you know, make sure to check out the new book. That's one of the reasons I had this two week thing with Bad Religion. I love the new book. They sent me a copy of it. It's amazing. You guys need to check it out. Do What You Want, The Story of Bad Religion. It's written with all the band members as well as Jim Ruland, who was on the program last week. So check all of that out. Also, Bad Religion's kind of been active here lately. They've been releasing some stuff. They released a demo version of Lose Your Head. 
and they did like a new classic, a new version of their classic song, Faith Alone, which is mostly piano and it's kind of subdued. We talked about it, Jay and I did on, on the conversation. So check those out. They're on YouTube. They're on the streaming sites and everything. And that is really it this time. So that's it for this week. Thank you guys so much for coming back every week. I love doing this podcast and you are a huge part of it because without you, I would just be talking into a microphone and nobody would give a shit. So thank you so much for being a part of the TOTOT family. Go over and check out the Facebook group, TOTOT Community. Go to TOTOTpodcast.com and sign up for the mailing list. Buy some merch. Help us out. We're always trying to put new stuff out into the world. I think we have those little things now. I'm not sure if they're up on the site yet, but uh, my art director, Sarah, sent me a picture those things you put on the back of your cell phone so you can hold it. I don't know what they're called, but uh, we have those now and we have masks and shirts and, and all kinds of cool stuff. So check out the new limited edition merchandise, support your favorite podcast, TOTOTpodcast.com. Go get connected. Hit me up on all the socials at TOTOT podcast. I'm normally on Instagram and I try to get back to everybody as soon as humanly possible. And uh, so hit me up if you have guest suggestions or you just want to chat, whatever. If you want to tell me that I suck, that's cool too. I'm always open for constructive criticism. I love doing this show, but I would like to know what you guys want more of. Do you want more segments in the intros? Do you want me to just shut up and go to the guest? Like, let me know some feedback. I love you guys and I want you to feel like you were a part of this show. This is a very inclusive show. One thing I will say I wasn't going to get very political. I did watch the debate last night and it was disheartening to say the least. Um, I'm, I'm not a super political person. I have a lot of friends that are on both sides of the aisle and you know, I'm not a Trump fan. I really just think he is an out of touch, rich asshole. And he, I don't know. I'm just not a fan, but if you're a fan, that's cool. The one thing that I will not tolerate, though, is the racism thing. And with Trump, you know, they ask him to, you know, give his thoughts on white supremacists, disavow the white supremacists. He couldn't do it. And he actually gave like a shout out to the fucking Proud Boys. I'm sorry. If you like Trump, I fine. You know, you have different ideas than I do. You have different politics than I do, but there is no reality where a president won't say basically fuck white supremacy. You know, we don't live in some crazy dictatorship yet, and I'm not the hugest fan of Biden, but you don't hear him saying that shit. And I mean, and I don't want to like bum you guys out. Like I said, this isn't a political podcast. I'm not that much of a political person at all. I do have my own thoughts. I normally keep them to myself and I vote the way that I vote and I don't talk about it. But racism is a problem and Trump needs to tell people that he needs to, I mean the fucking, for one thing, I'm sorry. If you're, if you're a proud boy and you listen to this podcast, find another podcast because it's just, it's stupid. And I'm, that's how I feel. And maybe I'm going off the rails right now, but I, I feel like that most of you guys out there that listen to this show are, you know, like-minded with me. 
And I'll say it straight up and I'm not trying to be a hard ass or anything, but if you are into the whole racism thing, you're a white supremacist and you listen to this show, find another fucking show. It's, it's just, I mean, Trump's done a lot of stuff and I've just always been like, oh, he's a blowhard. Oh, he tweets too much. When you won't come out against white supremacists, you won't come out against David Duke when David Duke endorses you. I don't think Trump is like this big, crazy racist guy. I think that in his head, the people that, you know, people that are white supremacists and people that are a part of those organizations are in his key demographic and no offense to anybody that's not those people that still want to vote for Trump. That's fine. But he doesn't want to say anything bad about those people because they're, they vote for him. So I just, I went off on a tangent. I apologize. I was really happy. And now I'm kind of getting bummed out, but yeah, that's, that's where I stand. And this is, that's where my household stands. And that is, this podcast is not a political podcast. I want to include everyone from all walks of life, except racist pieces of shit. So I hope you guys enjoyed my little rant. I love you all. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I've never really talked about that kind of stuff on the podcast before. So I just, I watched that debate last night and it just really left a bad taste in my mouth. So yeah, fuck racism, fuck the proud boys. And I hate even saying their name because that gives them more publicity. So just fuck white supremacists. That's how I feel about it. So that's it, guys. <laughs> Happy time now after after talking about that shit. So before I jump out of here, I am going to play a couple songs from Bad Religion. I'm going to kick it off with the recently released demo version of Lose Your Head, followed by one of my favorites, which was inspired by the shit show of a pres- presidential debate that I watched last night. I'm going to play American Jesus and uh, that's it. So make sure to subscribe, rate and review so you don't miss anything. I love you guys. Uh, Yeah. Don't buy the bullshit, man. Like most politicians are the same, but he's the only one I know of that's not coming out against that bullshit. So I love you. No more political talk at all on the podcast in the future. Uh, As always, This is Chris. Hit me up on the socials. Peace. Waiting to happen at all times
what's the army will? Expressions on the faces of the starting millions of power and the damn The few that drives the clan, he's the motive and the conscience and the murderer He's a preacher on TV, the false sincerity The form that had driven by the big computers and nuclear bombs The kids with no bombs and a pitfall that he's inside me Lars Fredrickson from Rancid. This is Mark O'Connell from Taking Back Sunday. This is Tom from MXPX. Hey, this is Jay Bentley from Bad Religion. This is Vinny from Less Than Jake. This is Travis from Coheed and Cambria. This is Chris number two for the band Anti-Flag. Hey, this is Ricky Rocket from Poison. This is Pete Parada from The Offspring. Hey, this is Zach Blair from Rise Against. Hey, this is Eddie from the band Thrice. Hi, this is Frank Turner. Hey, this is Jim from Pennywise. Hey, this is Eric Smelly, the drummer of No Effects. Hi, this is Bill from Faith and More. Hey, this is Chris from Propagandy. Hi, this is Rory from No Use for Name. Hi, this is Ben Gillies from Silverchair. This is Stefan from Descendants, and you're listening to That One Time On Tour with Chris Swinney. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians. Everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.